impressive that you're here because it was negative 40 this morning. And uh, it's ironic in Oklahoma where I'm from, if there's even a little bit of snow on the ground, they cancel church. And I feel like the more snow that's on the ground, it's a thing of pride for Colorado. We're going to church, right? Uh, And so I think Ronnie set the precedent that we just aren't canceling church for weather uh, on Sunday. So uh, you can get that in your holster. I'm Colby, and I serve as a teaching elder here, and whether you're here in person or online, we're so glad that you're, you're gathered with us. Um, after Christmas, um, I had a cousin that, um, had, that got married on a Monday, because you can do that like after Christmas down in Red River, and great wedding, and, uh, and afterwards, you know, they had like skiing planned, and they got cool photos and all of that, but it was in like a, a huge lodge, and... After the wedding was over, they had a reception, and of things that are in weddings, there are some things that are a roll of the dice. You never know how it's going to go. Flower girls are one of those. You get a flower girl, you could get small amounts of flowers throughout the way. They could dump the basket. They could scream, run. Kids are an X factor of weddings, all right, so that's there. The, the other is dancing at a wedding. And I would love to survey in this church. I could probably guess who had dancing at their wedding. But it's kind of a swing for the fences because if you have dancing and people don't dance, it's lame sauce. All right? But if you put dancing in there, which usually most people also have alcohol at those weddings, helps the dancing. Like, it, it kind of goes to a different level. And it's so much fun. And So they had dancing and they started playing music and at first nobody went out and danced. And then there was this certain demographic that broke the ice. Now you tell me, who were the first person, first people to go out on that dance floor? How old do you think they were? Right? (laughs) Kind of old people you got. Right? It was the kids. The kids started feeling it, and all of a sudden an arm starts going, all right? And then the stanky leg, and they start moving, and then they start playing. Once the ice is broke, then they start playing like different eras of music that invited people, right? Like if Chubby Checker came on, the grandparents were rolling in, right? And you can laugh about that, but some of you, when Footloose came on, they're like, I know this one, Right? And so they began to to play music. And there's this thing about that kids can oftentimes lead us. Because somewhere along the way, we became self-conscious. Self-conscious? We became aware. We became old and crusty. The kids were enjoying the wedding in ways that the adults were not. They were free. And, and it, it just became this incredible way, like it, almost apparent to me that they were humble and free-spirited in ways that some of us have lost. And we're going to lean against a pole on the back like it's a middle school dance and they're going to be out there just cutting a rug, having the time of their life. This says something to me because Jesus today is going to use kids as a teaching illustration. And so, our master loved kids. Our master um, cared about kids. Our, 
our master created youth and children to teach us certain things about the kingdom. And if there's anybody here that's not too old, hard-hearted, and crusty, maybe today we can let Jesus use kids to teach us. So, let's pray and ask for the Holy Spirit's help because God knows we need it. Amen? Let's bow our hearts and minds. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your court with thanksgiving and your presence with praise because you are the creator and sustainer of all things. You hardwired every aspect of the universe to declare your glory. And that includes youth. And so God, today, would you dismantle pride that we've got stacked up in our hearts? Would you take away all desire for status and acclaim and for fame? And God, would you make this church full of servants? God, come and teach us what true greatness is. God, don't let our arrogance blind us. And so Holy Spirit, come and reveal sin. Cause us to repent. Cause us to walk in your way of the cross. We love you, God. Come be the pastor and the teacher. Humble us, we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said. Amen. Get your Bible out. If you got one, Mark chapter 9. If you got a notebook to take notes, break that out. It's a new year. Same old you. Uh, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 33, is where we're going to get. A little bit of a jog where we have been. Because I think the context of this is going to make this even more stark. The context is, they are now on the first leg of a journey that is leaving Jesus' ministry in the north and heading downhill from the Mount of Transfiguration down into Jerusalem where Jesus is going to die on the cross for your sin. So, off of the Mount Transfiguration where His greatness is unveiled before them, He has preached to them the gospel as we talked last week about laying down His life. And as they've come down from the mountain of His greatness, we have arrived previously in the previous passage at the inadequacy or the limitations of Jesus' disciples, particularly when they do not pray. And now we come to this discussion, this teaching on the first leg of the road trip. And I, I, I'll read it and then we'll kind of get there. 33, and they came to Capernaum, we've talked about this, is a city in the north part of Galilee. They did frequent ministry there. And when he was in the house, speaking of Jesus, he asked them, what were you discussing or arguing or debating on the way? And 34, but they kept silent. They were embarrassed. For on the way, they had argued with one another who was the greatest. And so this is a great way to start the road trip, right? Have you ever started like a 13-hour journey with your kids? Ten minutes in, they start arguing in the back seat, and then one of them asks the dreaded question, are we there yet? It's like, I will punch a kid. Just kidding, that's online. I wouldn't. But it's been in my heart before, all right? And Jesus, as the parent in the front seat, hears them bickering in the back seat of the car and just lets it go. He's, listen, parents, this is great. Sometimes you just got to let them go full vent and you get a better grasp of where the kids are at. And so it says, 
He waited, though, until they got into the house to ask this question. So let me point this out. One kind of side note here. Not every rebuke that you do needs to be public. He waits till they get home. Wives, not every correction of your husband should happen in front of everybody else. Husbands, not everything that you correct about your wife, you don't have to correct your wives, they're all perfect. But if you did correct her, maybe a couple of those might want to wait till home. So he waits till they get home, and it says that he asked them what they were arguing or discussing on the way. This is not strange for Jesus as a teacher. In Deuteronomy, it says that that we teach as we rise up and we sit down as we are along the way and when we come into our home. And so Jesus enters into this Old Testament tradition. But it says in verse 34 something that kind of reveals their heart. It says that, but they kept silent because they argued who was the greatest. So what makes this just a little bit cringy is that up next to Jesus, who just in the previous 30 through 32, talked about laying down his life, he talked about sacrifice, and he talked about service, right up next to that is them arguing about which one of them is the greatest. The context of this makes it just a little cringy, doesn't it? Have you ever said something that as it's going outside of your mouth, you wished you could like grab it. Have you ever been in conversations or said things that once you get about two or three sentences into the conversation, you're looking for the exit? You realize I should never have gotten into this debate. Church, there are some arguments that we should not have. Not all conversations are righteous, good, and holy. Um, And so inside of our holster has to be the option to just full stop. To not go there. Because here's the thing. If you don't kill the rabbit and ignore the trail, even if you win the argument, you still lose. Let me say that again. There are some arguments that are so unholy that even if you make brilliant points and even if you are right, you're still wrong. And so we've, we've got we've, we've to be able to say no, to be silent and to not go there. And isn't this sort of, as we look at this context, isn't it some sort of awful timing even? As Jesus is talking about his own cross and sacrifice and ministry, that we're going to get wide receiver in the NFL braggadocious. Like, that's the worst kind of timing. It's like your boss comes to you at your workplace and says, listen, there's shortfalls. We're going to have to cut some people. There's going to be some cutbacks. We're going to have to make some hard choices. And then you take that as your opportunity to ask for a raise. Right? You got a friend that's going through a divorce and they're trying to process that with you and they're, hey, I'm going through a divorce. So does that mean you're free on Friday night to watch my kids while I go on a date night or are you tied up there? It's new year, new you. It's 2022, right? It's like I'm dieting, I'm exercising, 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get fit this year. It's like, who wants cake? You know what I mean? So let me just say this. As the disciples, but also us, have you ever realized that there's just spaces in your life where you can be completely tone deaf? Like your situational awareness is pretty minimal. You are not the Jason Bourne of your situation. And the ultimate act of humility is standing before Jesus on way to Jerusalem. And we're talking like we're Muhammad Ali bragging about we're the greatest. This is, if you want from me, the posture and the arrogance of sinful man. Because... We are standing before the greatness of God in the flesh and we're making the case for how awesome we are. We're the awesomest. And that's not even a word. It proves how not awesome we are. We're standing before the greatness of God and we're navel-gazing. There... I want to get into just, let's break this down just a little bit about pride. There, um, in my study and, and the way I think about this, there are really two types of pride. Because I don't know if we can be, hum- be honest, but none of us in this room or online or any human on the planet came out the womb humble. None of you did. And I certainly didn't, all right? None of us came out the womb humble. But pride in each of us, I would argue, expresses itself two very different ways. One of them is overt and the other is covert. What I mean by that, there is an overt Muhammad Ali, wide receiver in the NFL, self-absorption, self-focus, self-praise. The whole earth revolves around me. It's loud, it's open, it's overt. This is my drug of choice, all right? For people that feel like you're super capable, this is, this is going to be oftentimes your path to go that way. You're great, you're good at stuff, and you know it. And you want everybody else to know it. The other is the one that we don't focus on as much. It's not the overt, but it's the covert. It's the... I just can't do it. God's word doesn't apply to me. I like I know that's what God said, but I'm like I'm not going to do it. I I know what God's commands are. But in false humility I'm going to find something else to do to bypass them. See, both refuse to depend on God's grace to do God's work to God's glory. One thinks they're super capable of doing it without God. The other person, because they think they're incapable, act as though God's rules don't apply to them. Or that God didn't have your weakness in mind when He called you. And so we might be overt, or we might be walking around with false humility... But listen, can we just be honest here? 
you've got some flavor of pride that you have to repent of. You've got a flavor of it. Pride, as I've heard it said, is the carbon monoxide of sin because it silently and slowly kills you without you really ever knowing. And the reason why I think this is, is because it's a sin that has a built-in self-defense mechanism in its shadows. It hides its weaknesses from others, right? Like if you're creating an online dating profile, it's like, you know, nobody's going on there throwing their weaknesses. Nobody's like, once you get over my great looks, my charm, how much money I have, and how great I am at dancing, you know, the thing that you'll love the most is my personality, right? Nobody's coming in bragging about their weaknesses. Why? Because pride loves to mask its weaknesses, and there's nothing that we choose to mask our own weaknesses in pride more than the weaknesses of others. That's why they're arguing. That's why they're debating. That's why they're posturing. They're arguing because nothing hides Peter's sin like saying, at least I'm not Judas. It hides weakness best, maybe, in the weakness of others. And so that's why we have to fight because we think our greatness is a comparative greatness. That I'm only great as I compare myself to you. This breeds within us and within the disciples a sense that I am better than you. That I'm better than you. And I don't know that a lot of us walk around all day long spitting the idea that we are better than other people. We're too good at hiding sin to be just walking around talking about how we're better than other people. Here's where I think this plays out in the church. And tell me if I'm wrong here. We have a sin of pride to repent of that we feel like we're better than other people. And the reason why I think that that's something that we need in this church is because if we find somebody who is less spiritually mature than us, we spend so much more time criticizing them than we do serving and helping them. And if you were humble, truly, and you were empowered by the grace of God knowing your own sin, you would never look down your nose at somebody else trying to walk with Jesus in weakness. You would rather see them and say, how can I help this person? But if you gossip and you rumor and you spread things about other people, it is a sign that you do not have a spiritual majority over them because you hadn't figured out the first thing about what it is in the kingdom to serve people. That's what we're going to get to where he brings children before them and says, serve children. But we, we're tempted there, aren't we? To compare my spiritual life to your spiritual life. And instead of appreciate that there's maybe things that you do that's better than me. And I can learn from you. Instead, I pivot to what I'm better at than you. And I point out your weaknesses. Are, are we real yet? So, let, me, let me put it like this. If the disciples are a microcosm of the church then we can say that this spirit of rivalry is from the enemy to divide them. Or let me put it to you a different way. 
competition in this manner kills community. You want deep community in your house church? Love one another. And put every bit of this kind of competition away. Serve one another. Don't sit around judging, propping yourself up that you're something great. Have a servant's heart. We're going to get there. So, here's my question that maybe I asked from this text. And it's not going to give me the answer, so I don't know what it is. What in the world is their criteria for judging that one of them is greater than the other? Right? I'd love to know. It's like, did you hear me preaching when he sent us out two by two? It's like my sermons were fire. I handed out seven times more bread and fish than Matthew. That brother been sitting at the tax booth too long. I work a lot with fish. Right? My amens when Jesus preached on the, on the mount, they were perfectly well-timed. Right? Mm. Randy, there's only one person paying attention in here right now. When Jesus turned water to wine at the wedding, I drank six times. It's because you're a Baptist. I'm just joking. All right. So, um, there is this sense in which, tell me if I'm wrong here, that we have to constantly push back against a focus on ourselves. Is that just me? Like, I got to constantly, there is never a time where I can let my guard down because at any given, the natural flow and gravity is for me to be self-focused. And so I have to constantly turn my eyes to Jesus and turn my eyes to others by His grace through faith. And without His help, I will never do it. And so I think the indictment here is clear. Let me give you an illustration. Have you ever uh, been in a group photo, like taken a group photo? And I'm infamous for I don't like to smile in photos because if I happen to be smiling when you take a photo, it's one thing. But I don't like the idea of people asking me, hey, smile. It's like, it just feels fake to me. But I'm married, and we've taken family photos, and i got kids, so I fake it until I make it. Okay, so I smile. All right, I've changed. But I don't like, like group photos. But here's what's going to happen. You're going to be in a group photo with your friends or your spouse or family or kids, and they're going to take a photo. And if I had that picture and I show it to you and you're in the picture, who do you think you're going to look at first? Hmm. That's weird. Have you ever been looking at yourself in a group photo and somebody else who's in the photo looks at it and it's like, oh my God, I look terrible. And it's like, why did you post that online? That is a... Every chin, I got more chins than I actually have. Why did you do that? My clothes were messed up. My eyes were closed. My mouth was open. You're like, why did you post that photo of me looking so terrible? It's like, because I look real good. Especially next to you. Right? The bend of, church, listen to me. Just... The, the only way to fight pride is to get it out there in the open. The bend of our souls is self-absorption. It's self-worship. Listen, New Age is not the biggest religion that is against Christianity in La Plata County. 
Neither is Islam in the world or Buddhism or Mormonism. The most toxic religion that your co-workers and friends that don't know Christ are fighting right now is the worship of self. It's the worship of self. So I think that's the indictment. Or maybe, I'm, maybe I'm making my case too strong, but I think that's where we're at. But I find what Jesus does next is brilliant. Okay, so look at verse 35. Because he takes it in a direction that I wouldn't, I studied this a bunch of times and I didn't expect it to go this way. 35. And he sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. Last, servant. Earlier he has said, if you want to live, you have to die. And he took a child, which in this culture, children did not run their households. We have a different flip view where our whole universe revolves around kids. For them, even Galatians will compare this, children were basically like indentured servant slaves that lived with you. All right, They were lowly. They had no social status in the culture. So he takes a kid and puts him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever, look at the word, receives one such child in my name, receives me. You you can hear Peter scoff with his Popeye arms as a sailor. It's like, "I'm, I'm picking up kids? And whoever receives me, here's your trinity, receives not me, but him who sent me. Because Jesus and the Father are one. Now, Jesus, in response to their backseat argument, sits down. Comes in the house, he assumes the position of a rabbi. Rabbis would often sit and begin with their disciples to unpack things and to teach. He takes the, he, he rests his legs, but he fires up their minds. So disciples, grab a seat. School is in session. This is a coachable moment. Boys, take a knee. Circle up. Let me learn you something. And here, I would argue, is the central aspect of uh, the path. To be first, which is something that you kind of want, you have to go and be last To live, as he's taught previously, you have to die. And to be great, you have to serve. I want you to note something from this passage that I think is curious. Jesus does not condemn greatness. That catches me off guard. Jesus does not condemn greatness. Greatness. But he defines what true greatness is and even gives them the pathway to get there. Does he not? So I'm going to, this is my definition. Tell me where I'm at here. True greatness in this passage is receiving Jesus and all God is into your life. And the path to walking out that greatness is becoming a servant 
of all. True greatness is receiving Jesus and all God is in your life. And the path to walking out that greatness is becoming a servant of all. Even lowly, ignorable kids. And you know why kids cry? Because otherwise we would ignore them. Okay, so what is Jesus doing? He is noting that they have imported into the kingdom a worldly definition of greatness and are employing worldly means to achieve it. They got the world's definition of greatness and they're using the corporate ladder, argue your way to your top, fight, claw, scratch to get to the top. They're taking worldly means to get there. Let me give you an idea of what our kids are facing when it comes to this idea. For them, in this culture, for kids and youth, there is nothing that they want more than to be famous. Which is tough because back, for some of you gray hairs, in order to become famous, 60 years ago, you had to like go to the moon or do something worth remembering. Now, with the advent of social media... Young people will sell their souls for likes on a screen. And they will suffer incredible um, damage to their mental health if they don't get the fame that they want. And, and increasingly, they got to do more and more eccentric, vile, debased things because... The normal stuff's all been done. And so you've got a whole generation in our culture who are arguing on Instagram and on TikTok. They're fighting and clawing and scratching to have a worldly definition of greatness and it's nothing more than empty fame, even surrounded oftentimes by having accomplished absolutely nothing. And Jesus just debunks the world's definition of greatness and removes its pathway as a legitimate means. And if you think, even for a second, that this hasn't come into the church, you're nuts. You're absolutely nuts. I, I know I'm standing on stage and I'm speaking to you and even in a church in the corner of the world like this, People can let this stuff go to their head. You can let being an elder go to your head. You can let being a deacon go to your head. You can let being a teacher go to your head. You can, whatever pet ministry in here that you think belongs to you, you can let that junk go to your head. Amen? Are we right? And we can import a worldly mentality into this church that it is top down instead of bottom up. If our elders are not bottom-up serving this church, they are not qualified to be elders. If our deacons are not bottom-up serving the people of this church, they're not qualified to be deacons. It is not a top-down... We are not Roman Catholics, praise God. We are at our best, church, as leaders and as members of this church, when we have a place in this church to serve. But look at, look at this. How many people have heard the conversation of someone coming to visit a church or try a church, they move to a new place, and they say, what... What can I get out of the church? Tell me about what the worship is like. What kid programs do you have? I don't get anything out of the preaching. 
What is this mentality except consumerism that says, what can I take from the church instead of what can I give to the church? Let me tell you this. What is so toxic about this idea is that your best fit in a church doesn't come from what you get out of that church, but what you give. And as long as you are looking to take, instead of looking to serve, you'll never find your fit in any church. Why? Because the pathway to greatness, I'm going to argue, from this passage is service. It's service. I, and I, I'll, be, is, I'll put all my cards on the table. As a pastor here at this church, I am not content until every member of this church and everybody we have responsibility for has found their place to plug in and serve faithfully. I, I sit around and think all the time of people that are floating out there that have not found their place to use their times, their energy. Because I know that it's to God's glory and your good if you can find your stinking spot on the bus. Amen? Listen, I love you enough to try to fight for that for you. Everybody that God has called here together into this family has a role and has a responsibility and has a way to serve. And that is a part of God's calling on your life to be great. But it is not going to come to you with a worldly definition and a self-absorbed attitude. Amen or oh me. So, what Jesus does here, and I want to repeat this, is that He does not condemn greatness. Instead, He actually teaches them how to get there. And that's, that's just tough for me. Because I think some of us see the pursuit of greatness as a negative because of false humility that we have that causes us to hide our talents rather than invest them. We have a cowardice that makes us hoard instead of be generous. There's a sense in which some of us here are content with never getting better. Never growing. Never thriving. And trust me, catch me on the right day, and I am not a childlike learner. Can we be honest? Okay. But maybe I can break this down to you. Who here, I, I'm going to argue that you love greatness. The reason why I know that is because you will see somebody do something on a field, and you'll buy their jersey. You'll, you'll hear somebody do great, make great music, and you'll go home, and you'll pick up your guitar like you're going to get within 40 miles of what they just did. Right? You see a great piece of architecture and all of a sudden you're buying your kids Legos. We see greatness and it compels us. We love greatness. Greatness is something, especially as believers with the Holy Spirit in us, God longs to pull out of us. And nobody loves the opposite of it and I can prove, uh, let me give you an idea. Uh, who here, when you have a heart surgery, uh, wants a mediocre heart surgeon? Somebody skip class? Sloppy? Right? They got a one-star review on Yelp. Brain surgeon. Right? 
Who, who here wants to trust their retirement with somebody who isn't great at it? Who here is going on vacation this year and you're looking for a place to go vacay and you read all the reviews and it's like, yeesh. Yeah, let's throw our saved money towards that. We'll go have a terrible... T- who, who here is looking for mediocrity when it comes to the person that fixes the brakes on your car? Anybody? Oh, so you like greatness. You like people that push and try and want. and Greatness in and of itself is a part of our witness. You show me a Christian who in false humility has settled for mediocrity and I will show some, you somebody with a terrible witness to the world. The Bible says we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Jesus calls us not to stay bad Christians or bad spouses or bad parents or bad kids or bad bosses or bad employees. Jesus calls us to not be bad friends. And certainly from this passage we can derive that Jesus does not call us to be bad servants. Amen? Come on. When we... Get the point here. When we receive Jesus and become the best versions of ourselves, it's always beneficial to others. There is no best version of yourself that doesn't have God's glory in mind and the good of others in mind. So if whatever version you think that is of you doesn't get to the glory of God and the good of others, brother, you ain't arrived. But come on, receive Jesus and become more and more and more of who He designed you to be. I promise you it's good for the rest of us that are around you. I promise you, it will bring glory to God. This is because greatness will, if Jesus is to be agreed with here, is always going to look like service. This is us. Jesus is going to teach us that the path to greatness is service. And there's no greater service that Jesus has done for us than the cross. It's humiliation. The word humiliation has the word humility in it. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking about ourselves less. But here's the thing. You can't just not look at yourself and say, okay, I'm not thinking about myself because you still, you still are. What has to happen is you have to look to something else. You have to fix your eyes upon Jesus and let thoughts of yourself fade away. And what Jesus is doing and who Jesus is calling you to serve. And here's the thing. Um, I had a buddy. uh, (laughs) I love this guy. Just total redneck. Dropped out of high school. Got got on meth. And in the middle of a field. uh, He was like 20. Just God hit him and and called him to himself. Sobered him up. I think he was just running crazy on drugs in the middle of pasture. Comes back. Hears the gospel. Gets saved. Starts his own business. 
Um, he's actually a landscape architect uh, now and has a company that does all this stuff. And he began to get in the kingdom and, and he began, began to serve people as ferociously as he had served drugs. Because worship is worship, right? And he started serving God and serving others. And I'm telling you, this brother could set a pace of caring about other people and meeting needs that is just hard to match. And I loved it because I just fed off of it. I just wanted to be more like him. And he told me something that I've never recovered from. And I said, brother, you got so much going on. And I was just kind of asking him questions, just, you know, seeing how his soul is and how he's doing. He says, he, he told me, he said, Colby, like, I'm, I'm so captivated by God and so busy serving other people, I forget I have problems. Anybody ever been there before? And I just loved his mentality. It's like his own problems seemed to fade as he kept his eyes on God and he kept his eyes on the harvest. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. But but the issue is, is you you can't just close your eyes, you've got to look somewhere. And so I'm going to tell you, we've got to look to the cross. Uh, There's a story uh, in Greek mythology about uh, narcissist. And the word narcissism comes from this Greek mythology. And the story of Narcissus is that he was walking one day past a pool of water and he saw a reflection in that water and he had never seen anything so handsome, so beautiful, so great, so amazing in all of his life. And so the story in Greek mythology is, is that he looked at that reflection until he died. Which is scary because have you ever walked by a mirror and you say, ooh, who's that good looking guy, right? And so multiply that for the rest of your life. What, what, what does the story of Narcissus teach us? Is that we can so gaze at our own reflection in the water that it kills us. That it kills us. So what is, doesn't give any remedies like Greek mythology often doesn't. It's just sad, depressing stories. But Jesus here gives actually like a cure. It's real helpful. Um, anybody can see the problem. It's real helpful to get something to fix it. Jesus comes here and says, and he, if anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child, full circle here where we started. Our master used children as a teaching illustration. He took something lowly, something that's easy to overlook. Um, and he put him in the midst of them. And take him in his arms. I love this, that Jesus was good with kids. He took him in his arms and he said, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Disciples, if you're too important and your stature is too big to serve kids, then you have an inflated view of your greatness. Moms, dads, if you're too busy, too inflated in your importance and stature to serve your kids, you have an inflated view. You have an inflated view of your stature. He takes kids and he says, 
serve these kids. And in serving them, that's the best posture to receive me. He pulls the kid aside and says, hey, Thomas, this kid needs a snack. Hey, put this one on your shoulders. Chuck him around. This one needs to go to the bathroom. This kid needs help picking up because God knows kids don't come out the womb knowing how to clean a room. He brings the disciples next to him and he says, there is something about your posture when you're serving kids that is the same parallel posture of when you receive me. And that's what I see in the text here. And let me make a side note here. If this is true, we should never be short of nursery workers. If this is true, we should never be short of people to volunteer to want to or do kids camp. If Jesus is true here that in serving them, there is something that we can uniquely know in the name of Jesus about serving and knowing him. Some of us are missing out on knowing Jesus deeply because we tell ourselves we're not good with kids. Or we only work with adults. Let me tell you this. If you can't teach kids and you can't serve kids, you may be unfit to serve adults either. Not because you can't communicate to adults or that you're not better with them, but it's because your posture's wrong. You're too proud. You, I love that when I started ministry, some of the first things uh, that my mentor had me do was learn to teach kids. Learn to teach youth. Learn, start there. And it was a great classroom for me to learn about Jesus. Jesus uses kids as a teaching tool and he uses them as a mirror and he uses them as a looking glass that when we see them, we see him and we see our own need for his greatness. His greatness on the cross where he died for our sins. And if we can see that exposed and let it be a mirror to expose our lack of humility and expose our pride, then at the same time, we can turn and find that we're in the right posture to receive Christ. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let me pray for you and we're going to sing. All across this room, I don't know um, maybe what the Holy Spirit has stirred up or what you are chewing on from this passage. But if you could say there's some places in your heart where there is pride, there is false humility, there's arrogance. If you can point those things out, and repent, and repent of them, praise God. Praise God. What's worse than being able to see the pride and false humility and have to repent of it? What's worse than that is having no idea what is your flavor of sin. So where are you at here? Do you see your 
arrogance, your pride, your self-absorption. Can you name it? Can you repent of it by the grace of God? I want to pray for you and I'm going to pray that each of us across this room who was born selfish, who is bent towards narcissism, would have a miracle take place in us by the grace of God and turn our eyes to Jesus. If any of us, by that grace, is able to do that, then we'll have something to sing about immediately after I finish. And so I'm going to pray for you. And I pray that you're at the throne of God and that you would just take that junk there. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. Father, I, um, I'm the most prideful person in this whole entire room. I don't know anybody in here with a greater pride issue than me. And so, God, I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. I need um, a new heart all over again. And God, I know that if you can rescue a sinner like me, um, you can rescue my brothers and sisters that are in here. I don't know what kind of flavor their pride is or what kind of form it takes. But Holy Spirit, you do. And so illuminate hearts and minds to make us acutely aware of our pride. God, keep back the enemy who would come and want us to hide our weakness in the weaknesses of others. God, keep back the enemy that in this moment would have us thinking about somebody else and their issue. God, Holy Spirit, come and, and let me look straight in the face of my issues and think of no one else. Jesus, come and cause us to receive you, um, to know you, and to glorify you. God, shake us out of mediocrity and make us great for the good of others and for your glory's sake. Teach us, Holy Spirit, that the only path in that direction is service. Oh God, pastor my friends here and help us in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Would you stand and sing with us? Jesus.